Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecociv.org. For today's episode, Jeremy Fackenthal speaks with activist and social entrepreneur Manda Brookman about Extinction Rebellion. Those of you who follow EcoCiv on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter will already have some familiarity with Extinction Rebellion, as we often share news stories about the important work they are doing. Extinction Rebellion describes itself as an international movement that uses nonviolent civil disobedience in an attempt to halt mass extinction and minimize the risk of social collapse. In the conversation that follows, Jeremy talks with Manda about the larger aims of the movement, its firm commitment to nonviolent activism, Manda's personal experiences with Extinction Rebellion, how others can join the movement, why she believes everything must change if we are to avoid collapse, and where she finds hope in the midst of intensifying planetary crises. Please just note that there were a number of audio issues while recording this conversation including occasional background noise and problems with the internet connection, which unfortunately caused Manda's voice to cut out at certain points. However, we have done our best to repair the audio as much as possible during the editing process. Personally, I found this conversation to be incredibly inspiring and energizing, and I think that you will too. And now, here's Jeremy and Manda. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Brookman, who is a social entrepreneur and change practitioner. Um, she resides in Cornwall in the United Kingdom and has been involved with Extinction Rebellion. And we um, are really excited to have you on the podcast today to talk a little bit about Extinction Rebellion, how it got started, um, the work that's being done right now, and then how that feeds into systemic and structural change. So, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Jeremy. Can you first uh, just tell us a little bit about what Extinction Rebellion is and, and how it got started? Extinction Rebellion is uh, it's abbreviated as XR. So people have seen references to XR. It's the same thing as Extinction Rebellion. Um, it's a social political movement or rebellion. It often refers to itself as a rebellion uh, with a very clear aim of using um, civil disobedience tactics and profoundly non-violent resistance to protest against climate breakdown, uh, biodiversity loss, and the risk of social and ecological collapse, all of which obviously are deeply intertwined. And when was Extinction Rebellion begun in the UK? Or can you talk about that, um, that first? I can. Well, essentially, a bunch of about 15 people got together in someone's living room in Stroud, which is a small town in the southwest of England, not a cu- just a couple of hours from um, where I am in Cornwall. Uh, they've been involved in uh, a movement called Rising Up, which was a response to climate breakdown and the ecological collapse. Um, and from a, um, a practitioner and an academic perspective because a number of the people involved were academics. In fact, Roger Hallam, who was one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, had in fact left his organic farm in Wales because he had found it increasingly impossibly difficult to manage 
a small holding farm with the extreme weather events that we were seeing over the last 10 years in actual fact. Um, And he started to undertake a PhD looking at social movements and how they are developed and how they can deliver change. So he was one along with people like uh, Dr. Gail Bradbuck and various others who wanted to try and find a way of delivering structural transformational change in the face of effectively structural and widely distributed silence, a denial in the face of uh, climate breakdown and um, ecological loss and collapse. And hence, Extinction Rebellion was born. And I think it's probably fair to say that they hoped for great change. They hoped for an engagement Uh, But I don't think they expected response. I first went to a meeting in Cornwall that happened uh, at the end of the summer last year. And I have to say, at the beginning, I wasn't entirely convinced that a lot of people would be willing to get arrested. Their stated aim of civil disobedience and non-violent resistance is important because the work that Roger and others have been doing made it very, very clear that if you want to deliver long-term widespread structural social change you need a number of things you need to be non-violent and absolutely immovably non-violent you need to engage with the capital cities because that is where the power and the money is located you need uh, a lot of people and you need to deliver disruption over a number of days and this is what was coming out of a lot of the research that he was doing there weren't sort of facts he pulled out of the air Uh, And they knew the level of disruption of willing to be arrested was required in order to send the message that in actual fact, if you think of what we've done globally with Prince of the Earth and Greenpeace and all the the enormous number of very small organisations, we have sort of tried everything. We've tried the letter writing and we've tried going to meetings and we've tried dressing up in suits and becoming organisations that can try and take this agenda to tried to talk about the natural environment in terms of natural capital we've actually changed our language and talked about it in terms of its economic value never mind its inherent um, environmental value or its social value we've tried everything and clearly evidently we have failed if you look at the reports that were coming out last year from the ipcc the ipcc 1.5 special report in october last year a special report 1.5 which is basically what we need to do in order to stay below a global average increase of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And of course, we had the IPPES report talking about biodiversity loss. We've had the UN Food and Agriculture Organization talking about the impact on our food and agriculture systems. Um, We've had the uh, positive deep adaptation paper that came out from Jim Bendel the end of summer last year, which is talking about the likelihood of social collapse and of course we had shocking uh, extreme weather events we had during the year last year so those things combined together Greta Thunberg appeared the school strike for climate um, became a thing and suddenly there was an opportunity to move what is referred to in Extinction Rebellion talk as the Overton window what is permissible to talk about um, in our social structures Do we talk about the price of cheese and where we're going on holiday and our current political structures? Or do we talk about the fact that we are staring the possibility of global extinction in the face? And suddenly we're talking about being in this game for a really long time. And I have never seen as many people become involved this quickly in something that's so terrifying, I think, 
there are a couple of things that are very, very interesting. One is that we're often told that if you scare people too much, they will shut down and giving people lots of very bad news, born of the lessons we learned in the Green Movement through the 70s, 80s and 90s, that if you give a very bad message, people will um, disengage. Enact what was discovered necessarily always true, especially when you get to a stage when it's clearly obvious around us. And I think what happened was, what certainly happened for me and for many people I know, is that there was a, sex, a sense of extraordinary liberation that finally we were actually talking about the thing that we all wanted to talk about, but that we've been told we couldn't say overtly because people might be scared. Um, and we had to dance around this strange, this enormous elephant in the room and pretend it wasn't there. And suddenly we were talking about it, which was incredibly energising. Um, and of course, pulling on the experience of... Um, movements such as Occupy, uh, Gandhi, the suffragettes, Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, understanding the role of profoundly and immovably non-violent direct action and the importance of bringing together people and allowing them to speak openly, to name the issue that we were up against, um, was profoundly, profoundly liberating. So it went from a dozen people in somebody's living room in a small town in the southwest of the UK in the spring of last year to now tens of thousands of members and Extinction Rebellion groups and affinity groups and working groups and actions happening across dozens of countries, um, never mind towns, with increasing engagement with what happened during the year last year, which went from uh, declaring the uh, rebellion at the end of the summer, uh, to a range of activities from the Rebellion Day, the Funeral March uh, down through London, uh, Rebellion Day 2, uh, swarming roadblocks, um, engaging with uh, local authorities, engaging with some of the big infrastructures, actions around London Fashion Week, uh, the action of the blood of our children, where fake blood was poured in front of the steps of number 10 to say, this is on the heads of our children. A naked demonstration in the House of Commons where friends and colleagues of mine um, definitely got the attention of the House of Commons on April Fool's Day. Uh, occupations across April um, during our rebellion fortnight when we occupied five key sites across London, which was a very big moment. It was built on the first bridge occupation in the November of last year. And this was um, a massive call out for rebellion and it was quite extraordinary. And I would say that it was an extremely moving event. I was on Waterloo Bridge for a number of days and part of it were very scary. There were a lot of police who arrived and the police were probably as scared as we were because nobody quite knew exactly how everybody else was going to behave. We knew we were non-violent. We didn't know what sort of tactics the police would use. The police, as it emerged during those few days, had never engaged with such an enormous, multi-site, absolutely peaceful demonstration before. They had never done that. They didn't know what to do. To their credit, they were broadly peaceful in their tactics, a few small exceptions. Um, but the response that we were getting anecdotally was that the police were saying, we don't know what to do, we're arresting people and we are all being cheered as they are carried away or we're being followed by chants of we love you because of course the fundamental premise um, of the occupation of those bridges and those sites across London was not only to bring London to a standstill very tactically in order to cause that peaceful disruption, in order to name the elephant, to name the beast and to get everybody's attention, 
But also we knew that in order to really get people's attention, we had to have people arrested. So when people started being arrested, that was actually what the activity was for. So in some ways, the, the police couldn't win. What I think was very, very interesting is going from a position of um, great anxiety and fear at the beginning of the week, when you know, we didn't know if people would have come to the rebellion, we didn't know if it would work, we didn't know exactly how it was going to pan out, even though there'd been huge amounts of um, organisation and effort, huge amounts of organisation effort beforehand, is that it was an astonishing success. So many people came to London and stayed in London. Um, and the engagement with the police was quite extraordinary. A close colleague of mine, one that I do a lot of the Extinction Rebellion talks across Cornwall with, uh, was sitting a few people along from me as we sat on the road as the police approached us. So a moment of you know, high adrenaline and anxiety. Um, and he was pulled out and pulled to the front and handcuffed and they began to walk him down the road. Now, he'd actually spent the night on the bridge and during the night he'd spent four or five hours talking at great length to one of the senior constables about the climate science. He's an environmental scientist by uh, qualification and he was explaining what the situation was, how critical the situation was, the uh, steepness of the trajectory that we're on, that if we continue as business as usual, we are looking at unimaginably dire consequences. If you think of the fact that we're currently at 1.1 degrees above where we should be globally, we're trying to stay below 1.5. We've just had the hottest June uh, last month on the planet ever. It looks like uh, July is going to be the same. We've had the hottest temperatures ever recorded in France, in Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, and parts of the UK just over the last week. Yeah. So we started talking about some of the climate science uh, and the um, constable listened very, very carefully. And as he was taken away in handcuffs, this particular senior officer saw my friend being taken away, made his way in full uniform, made his way through the crowd, and then put his hand out to shake my friend's hand. Mm, wow. The point being that he wanted to say, I see you, I see what you are doing, and I respect that, and I am doing what I had to do, but I want you to know that I respect the action that you were taking. And, and my friend said it was one of the most moving things for him of the whole 10 days. So I think there were many police who said, I've got children, I've got children too. You know, they had a job to do. Right. But it was absolutely peaceful across all the police and across um, all the protesters. When we were having to use um, informal people assemblies to decide what to do, for example, you probably heard about the boat, the big pink boat that was parked. Yeah in the middle of Oxford Circus, when we were having to decide right. where to move that, we used small-scale people's assembly to make a decision with thousands of people to make a decision within an hour about what the tactics should be. Uh, and I saw the police standing, there were lots of police, standing around the edge of those many, many, many people. And I saw officers turning away with wiping away tears because they could see what people were trying to do. They were trying to collaborate. They were trying to collaborate absolutely peacefully. They were trying to hear everybody's voice and trying to make a collective decision that was absolutely non-violent, but would raise this issue non-violently to the front page. So it was a very, it was a transformational two weeks, the, the rebellion week. And of course, since then, we've seen a number of other in the summer uprising. Uh, and of course, we know there have been actions being taken place um, across uh, Australia, across Germany, across Brussels, across Spain, across the States, New Zealand, Sweden, Canada, Colombia. So we know that we are many. That's fantastic. Can I ask to you, it seems that there's a difference, but a connection between 
the sorts of um, personal connections, like the one that you mentioned with the constable. So changing the, the mentality or framework for people sort of on the ground who come into mm -hmm. contact with the Extinction Rebellion. And then on the flip side, also pushing for uh, policy or systemic structural change. Mm. Can you talk about how those two balance out or what to you is more meaningful to see? Uh, well, they inform each other. Um, okay. It's very, yeah. very difficult to move very big institutions because institutions by their very nature um, are actually quite inert. Um, they are. They become institutionalised. They become a victim of their own processes. So it's very difficult to move things. And you can refer to a local government or a national government or international partnerships. They're too big and bulky and titanic-like to shift around. But of course, they're made up of individual people and sections and teams. And very often there are. There might be people in there who want to hide behind that inertia because it feels comfortable. They know there's a big bad world out there. But it's much easier to carry on doing what you're doing um, without thinking about it too much. We all of us deploy these uh, denial and blindness tactics just to disengage with reality because it's sometimes too difficult and too complicated and too challenging. It challenges everything that we're about, including our identity. Um, I think it was Upton Sinclair said, there is nothing as difficult as getting a man to change his mind when his job depends on him not changing it. So we have... Um, vested interest in not changing. But there are also people yeah. inside those big institutions and st structures that do want to change and have wanted to change for quite some time, but haven't been able to because of uh, social mores. It's uh, socially illegal, if you like. It's unacceptable to behave in any other way, that your mortgage might depend on it or your status might depend on it. But you know that something is awry. And I think um, what has happened is the way that Extinction Rebellion um, began was by sending out people to start having the conversation at a very, very, very local level. There wasn't a national call and just expecting people to arrive. People went to all corners of the UK to start talking to local groups of 10, 15, 20, 50 people to talk about the climate science. And of course, the people that came along to those were people who were already aware of the climate science and wanted to do something about it. So that started a ball rolling. And then suddenly you sort of started to look around and seeing that there were other groups elsewhere that were having this conversation that also wanted um, that sort of liberation of saying, yeah, actually, I've been wanting to have a conversation about this for a long time, but I, we self-edit, don't we? I've spent many years talking about um, the need for change, social, economic and environmental change. But you sort of package up uh, what you say because we've been informed by social science that says absolutely we mustn't scare people and I think that is sometimes true but actually it's more complex than that and maybe sometimes what people need is to be told that their trousers are on fire that might be the only thing that makes them move as Greta Thunberg yeah. says um, yeah. you know the house is on fire and it's no good somebody then pointing to the colour of the window paint and having a chat about that, you know, yeah. they need to say the house is on fire and we need to get mm -hmm. out. So I think that by that sort of engagement uh, and then a sort of uh, happy contagion of people talking to other people, talking to other people saying, Extinction Rebellion, have you heard about this? These talks going on. Um, and then there was an event that happened, as I say, not long after that in November, where um, I think 6,000 people went to London, again, targeting the capital city uh, to um, occupy five bridges. And that was many more people than they expected. But those 6,000 people came away changed, I think, and people watching it thought, wow, there are 6,000 people out there that are willing to do this. That's amazing. There are more people like me. And suddenly you started to see 
almost a, a wildfire of uh, possibility and ideas and courage since then of course and because people have engaged there i you know i give I talk some presentations all the time but the people who come to the talks aren't just people who tend to get involved in environmental activism there are teachers and doctors and architects and uh, mums and dads and grandparents and students and uh, caretakers and every part of the community is coming along because of farmers because this is important they're starting to see the relevance to them and because we are starting to speak the truth i mean one of the, the first extinction rebellion demand is to tell the truth we haven't told the truth to each other and certainly our power structures haven't been telling the truth for a very long time because of that socially constructed silence we don't talk about it because we don't talk about it so there's a silence about it and then there's a silence about the silence if there's a silence about climate change and then a meta silence about the silence around climate change which is incredibly right. dangerous um, yeah. yeah in fact stanley Cohen, in one of the books i was uh, going to refer to wrote an amazing book called states of denial where we are very capable as human beings of not talking about the bad stuff you can see it in what happened in Rwanda. You can see it what happened in um, during the Holocaust. You can see it happening in um, multiple events of incredible social suffering. We just don't talk about it. But the refugee migration crisis is happening every day now. But if we don't talk about it, it's not there, right? So we've effectively the states has effectively weaponized border control. Yeah. But it's not where it should be in terms of our mind and focus. I mean that. There are some very, very, very dangerous political manoeuvrings happening at the moment in the States and also um, across Europe. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. we've just we've just voted in probably the most right wing. It, in fact, it wasn't even voted in. Um, we've got yeah. now the most right wing government in the UK that's ever been there in my lifetime. So we need to speak these things. And as we say them, we can't do anything about it. So that sort of rolling contagion of the possibility of speaking what needs to be spoken is what engages people and when individuals are involved then they can talk to their groups and that's how you're seeing so for example in cornwall at the moment cornwall council um, declared a climate emergency in january and that was off the back of dozens and dozens and dozens of us making contact with our local councillors our local um, elected politicians and giving talks to local parish council and town councils local community groups um, and that could be 10 local councillors at a local council meeting or 150 people um, in a local church from the local community and by having those multiple conversations um, talking about this is an emergency we need to acknowledge it and talk about it and here's what we can do about it and here's what we can all do about it so it's very important to give people that sense of agency we tend to think that climate change is something that or climate breakdown is something that's happening over there to somebody else then and we're saying no it's happening here now so it's a completely different framing of what's happening and there is something we can do about it. there's a lot of things we can do about it so i think that's the connection between individual engagement and structural change that we can't have the structural change until we have the individual engagement multiple individual yeah. engagements and we yeah. know that big top-down change doesn't work very well so this is very Correct. very 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 bottom up yeah um, but it's an incredible emerging bottom-up that is very, very diverse. So I think it's changing. That's what I mean by the open window. It's changing how we understand this and it's changing how different individuals see that they have a role in it. So now we've got the UK Parliament has played a climate emergency as well as Cornwall Council. 
um, the BMA, which is the mainstream, most well-established British Medical Association, has declared a climate emergency. Um, REBA has declared an emergency. That's the Royal Institute of British Architects. These are big establishment organisations. Culture has declared emergency. Um, you're talking about local businesses declaring emergency. And it's not to say you declare emergency and then you've got to so that you're doing everything right. Declaring emergency is an indication that you know there's an emergency. <laughs> then yeah. you make a plan. So it's right. okay not to know what to do next. <laughs> you can only start by declaring and then you can figure out what you need to do about it. Yeah, that in fact was my next question. So that declaration of emergency is a good step, but there are other sort of changes there that have to come from that. Can you sort of articulate what kinds of social civilizational change um, is necessary to avert the worst kind of disaster? Everything. <laughs> um, and that sounds very glib, but in actual fact, we have locked ourselves into a deeply dysfunctional neoclassical economic paradigm, yeah. which premises yeah. extraction over irrigation, uh, which premises uh, opposites a very small elite. I mean, the level of inequality across the globe is catastrophically dangerous. Kevin Anderson, one of the, the foremost UK climate scientists, and has been outspoken on this for a long time, um, explained that if just 10% of the highest emitters, just 10% of the highest emitters were to reduce their, or the top 10%, were to reduce their carbon emissions to the level of the average European citizen, so it's still substantial, you're not talking about the average footprint of a Bangladeshi woman in, in rural Bangladesh, we're talking about the average European citizen level, then we would cut emissions by 30% overnight. So that is the level of inequality. So we have a huge amount of power and money and stuff at the top with a very small number of people. So it's that sort of shape and very little going down to the bottom. So the ridiculous irony is that everything that we need to do in terms of the transformational structural shift of climate change is actually very good for us as human beings. Um, it means that we have more fulfilled lives, a sense of purpose and autonomy. Most of us know it's not stuff that yeah. gives us a sense of well-being. It's connection with the people that are important to us it's access to fantastic outside spaces right it's a sense yeah. of purpose and value being able to participate having a sense of autonomy we know that's what makes us good functional human beings but of course the current economic paradigm which hasn't been around for very long actually it's a tiny it's tiny dot in the timeline right. but yeah. we've stopped thinking about it i think it was um marshall McLuhan said we don't know who it was that discovered water but we're pretty sure it wasn't a fish. <laughs> and it's that sense that when you're in something, you don't see it anymore. We sort of assume yeah. this is the only way of doing things, whereas not for that, there are at least 12 major economic models at play in the world at the moment. It's just that we never talk about this one. Yeah. And it has served a purpose, but now it's stopped serving a purpose and it's eating itself. So we need to have a life that is to do with um, understanding those priorities about having value, autonomy, purpose, connection with other, being able to participate. Um, we need to have food to have part of what XR calls a regenerative culture. What Kate Rayworth in Donut Economics refers to as models of economic activity that are redistributive and regenerative by design. So yeah. you're not just taking out that everything you're doing is leaving what you're using in a better state. So if you think about it as a garden, if we saw the globe as a garden, that every time you harvested food, you were doing it in such a way that you left the soil in a better position, a better place, a better condition. Whereas what we do, of course, is we literally 
it's like a big industrial vacuum cleaner. We are hoovering out resource, whether it's from the way that we are as human beings um, or the way that the natural ecological systems operate. I was just looking at some health data today for some one of the pieces of work I'm doing. And one of the things that Cornwall, like many other local authorities, is facing is an, you know some really big issues around obesity and smoking and alcohol use and poor mental health. None of those are communicable diseases. They're all functions of a dysfunctional system. We're making ourselves sick. So we need to be brave enough to acknowledge that first, then go through a process of uh, shock, probably, and grief and awe. So the, the, yeah, the structural changes are everything. It's how we live. It's where we live. Um, it's what transport systems are used. It's how much we think we can travel, actually. I and mean, Tourism and transport and housing and food production are going to have to change unimaginably if you're talking about trying to bring down ipcc says we have to bring down um, carbon emissions uh, by 45 percent um, by 2030 extinction rebellion says we need to go for 2025 to be carbon neutral and many other local authorities and governments are giving their version of whatever that might be but it means you know in the words of um of the UN and Antonio Guterres, unprecedented shift. It means everything right, has to change. Right. If you're talking about zero carbon, you basically get up in the morning, if you consider the lives that we have now, and you might make yourself a hot drink and then that's it. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have this, yeah. we're talking about everything must change. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really alarming or an incredible opportunity to be the adults in the room, to acknowledge that um, we are, well, maybe, you know, over a period of 30 years, we're the, the first generation to realise how catastrophic this is, uh, yeah. and the last generation to do anything about it. Now, I right. have two children. I have a 20-year-old and a 22-year-old. What informs me is getting arrested versus fighting for a future for my children. It's no, it's no contest. It's not a big yes. deal getting yeah. arrested. And there are many, many, many parents are saying, really, come and get me because my kids are more important to me than anything you can throw at me. And we will yeah. do it absolutely non-violently, but there's no argument here. Yeah, thank you. How can our listeners get involved in Extinction Rebellion? I um, mean, you mentioned that there are multiple ways. So um, one of the most important steps is willingness to be arrested and to manifest that change in a bodily way. What are some of the other ways and how would they reach out to Extinction Rebellion? Yes, absolutely. I think um, it's about showing up. Uh, and I mean that sort of psychologically and emotionally as well as physically. As I say, a minority yeah. of people will get arrested. It's about uh, being brave enough. And I don't underestimate the impact the science has if you look at it properly a lot of people find it very very difficult um, but it's amazing how it focuses the mind when you're a parent you say okay i will go through whatever i have to go to but i have to see what the danger is because i have two children um, yeah uh, and so nothing is bigger or not doable in the face of that truth um i think it's about informing yourself about the climate science and there's lots and lots of information about that everyone listen to some greta thunberg actually online mm -hmm. yeah. uh, she's everywhere online read the ipcc report there's a summary for policymakers i would advise you that it is flawed mm -hmm. and it's an understatement because it's a political document for example it doesn't contain 
the positive feedback loops as one example right. yeah. where we know that because one thing happens, another thing happens it more. Exacerbates and then it, the, exactly, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, so positive is a very confusing term for that. It just means it generates more action as opposed to a negative feedback loop, which means that it yeah. causes less action. Positive feedback loop means it's going to get much worse. I see it in terms of, imagine lots of snow on a, on a rooftop and it'll start to drip off bit by bit and then some of the icicles might melt. But what you don't realise is in actual fact, the ice melting is sliding underneath the snow. And because we're talking about big systems, it's quite unpredictable. And suddenly the whole lot might go all at once, which is sort of what we're seeing with some of the ice melt actually in the pot. We've got wildfires yeah. in the Arctic, for God's sake. It's right. quite urgent. Yeah. And so I think it's about stepping up. So informing yourself, but crucially, don't do it alone. It's really, really, really important not to do this alone. The science is terrifying when you start reading it. And as part of that, there's Extinction Rebellion everywhere. You can find it everywhere online. Um, if you're using Facebook, you can just type in Extinction Rebellion and you'll see a list of local towns and groups coming up. Um, they're very welcoming, very open. Use your community networks to find out where your local Extinction Rebellion activity is. And as somebody said to me once at one of the talks I gave, she said it was incredibly important to be listening to that information in a room full of other people. It's very different if you're listening, if you're watching it by yourself on a screen in your own home and we do advise people not yeah. to do it by themselves um, <laughs> uh, have a friend or a bottle of wine whatever it might be necessary but don't do this alone and if you can yeah. do it in a room then it means that you're doing it in massive company which means that mm. you absorb mm -hmm. you can probably stay with it for longer if you're in a big group of people and it also gives you a group of people to talk with at the time we have lots of breaks in the talk so we can say okay how are you doing? Do you want to tell the person next to you how are you doing? And we yeah. encourage people to, to talk about how they feel rather than what's in their head. So what's in their belly? Um, and then we encourage people to um, continue to talk about it. So the three things we say is talk about it, find out about it and talk about it with people who want to talk about it with you and with people that you might want to have a conversation about it. So do it collectively. Um, vote for God's sake. If we are yes. privileged enough to have right. democratic levers, then it is on us. This is mostly on us. Um, yes. In this hemisphere in the West, we are overwhelmingly unfairly privileged. And surely right. that is what privilege for is to use it for good. Mm -hmm. um, so I think voting is clearly, and if, if it's not on the ballot paper, then get it on there. Talk to the people that are in your political structures and say, this is bigger than anything. Where is yeah. it? And then join something. It might be joining Extinction Rebellion. It could be joining a local um walking group or gardening group or singing group but we have to do this collectively we have to do it psychologically collectively because it's mm -hmm. a bit of a head wrecker but as we've seen yeah. from all the activity happening across well all over the globe now in actual fact coming together is an immensely powerful and instinctive thing to do we can do incredible things together so join something that allows you to feel that you are part of something because the likelihood that part of something will join on to another part of something so step up face it first do it with other people go and talk with other people and say this is what's scaring me use extension rebellion as a massive support group um, even if you don't want to get involved mm -hmm. in any of the actions there's lots of other things that can go on talks reading get together social events banner making sharing books um, it's very much a collective activity and there are lots of people who are involved in permaculture and um, sustainable construction farming and uh, social and political and um, gender equality. The, it's, an inter, it's the most intersectional issue you can think of. Right. So there are lots and lots of other people yeah. that you can engage with and 
do it together. We have to do this together. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about, it's about understanding. It's about figuring out what you can do locally because there will definitely be something you can do locally. If you're hearing this, you have access to the internet and mm-hmm. some sort of device somewhere that means probably you've got access to other things that mean you will be having an impact. And if you're having an impact, then it's down to us. People say, oh, well, what about, what about China? What about all the things that China's doing? They think, oh, well, in actual fact, they're a world leader in renewables. Yes, they have massive carbon emissions, but most of those carbon emissions mm-hmm. are because we buy everything from there. So consider what you're buying. We've just exported all our carbon emissions to China and then give them a hard time for it. So yeah. it's about yeah. stepping up and taking responsibility. Good. It's hard to talk about hope in the midst of overwhelming evidence that things are getting worse and worse. But can you say uh, where you do see hope? Yes, it's a good question. Sorry, what I was trying to say and got sidetracked in my own talk was um, Rebecca Solnit, who's a fantastic writer and one of my go-to writers at the moment on this, talks about hope being not, not a lottery ticket. You clutch on the sofa hoping for passively hoping for somebody else to change something. She said, hope is an axe you break down the door with an emergency. And that's the sort of hope I'm talking about. Joanna Macy talks about Mm. active hope. There are various other people that are talking about, Greta Thunberg talks about courage, not just passive hope. It's about Mm -hmm. active and grounded hope is about understanding that we don't know whether we will succeed here, but by God, we're going to throw everything we have got at it because it's worth trying and secondly, that is how we will stay sane and well and behave well towards each other if we are united in this monumental, extraordinary effort that is more important than anything else. Actually, it's about the survival of our entire ecosystem, not just as a species, but everything else on it. Surely that's about as noble a cause as you can imagine. And it's what yes. will keep us together and working together. So I think I don't know whether we will succeed. An extinction rebellion makes it very mm-hmm. clear. We don't know whether this will succeed. Yeah. Uh, but if you've got a choice between trying and not trying, that's uh, not hard. That's right. That's where the hope comes in. There's Good. hope in Thank us. You. I get my hope from the people that I work with. Yeah. They are um, profoundly inspiring. Cool. Thank you. One final question. We, um, we'd like to end with asking people what they are reading. So you've mentioned a number of resources already. Are there other books, articles, et cetera, that you would, would point our listeners toward? Absolutely. There are some, um, I think there've been some very interesting writers around forever, but they're getting more airtime now. Rebecca Solnit, absolutely. Um, Naomi Klein, absolutely. Uh, these people have been talking about this for a long time. Uh, Stanley Cohen in the States of Denial. George Marshall, actually, George has re- wrote a book within the last four years, I think, uh, called Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. He's, there are also um, uh, YouTube uh, clips of him online, you can see, uh, talking about it. And it's mm. absolutely full of um, really insightful psycho-social science around why in God's name have we not done anything about this before. Mm. And explains why, as flawed human beings, we um, we don't look at what we, as, as John Berger said, we only see what we look at. <laughs> Yeah. And if we decide not to look at the tricky stuff, then we don't engage with it. Yeah. Um, Zerubbabel, um, that said E-R-U-B-A-V-E-L, the elephant in the room. Again, another brilliant, very accessible dissection of why we do not talk about the most important stuff in the room and why we go into this sort of 
structured denial, structural, socially constructed denial. Yeah. Catherine Hayhoe, she's done some fantastic stuff as a Christian, actually, and engaging with her various constituencies, a climate scientist, that's H-E-Y-H-O-E, I think. Um, and and if people wanted to be, and definitely see what you can see, that Greta Thunberg is uh, Kevin Anderson online. You can see all sorts of clips and talks from them. They're very accessible, very passionate, and say it as it needs to be said. Um, and I think if people are brave enough to go that one step further, if they wanted to read um, Jen Bendel's Deep Adaptation, which is uh, a paper that's available online, that's mm-hmm. quite scary, yeah. but it's almost like a rite of passage for a lot of people to realise this is as serious as it gets. Now, we don't know what's going to happen next, but it's not looking great right now. Yeah. Um, and certainly if we don't acknowledge that, we definitely won't make it. But if we do acknowledge it, we might have a chance of at least getting ready with some sort of decency. Um, and the last one is uh, Rupert Reed. Um, he's an environmental philosopher uh, at the University of East Anglia. He was down here in Cornwall a few weeks ago talking with uh, a number of us rebels down here um, across <laughs> the Cafe Disruptive Network, which is one of the networks that I run. Um, and he feels that he's just brought two uh, recent books out. Um, and I think he's, have a look, again, you can see lots of information from him online and lots of talks. And he talks about, no, we don't know. And we need to have a, a new environmental philosophy about this in terms of how we behave but we definitely need to act Uh, and he's very very engaging and well worth looking up so i think there is there are lots of writers who are talking about um the philosophy of it the climate science of it and i would also recommend uh the dark mountain project dark mountain project has been talking about this for a long time and talks about the role of the arts and the role of writers, uh, the role of uncivilised writing in terms of how it can help us deal with this uncertainty. Not in terms of using arts from an instrumental perspective and getting the message out, more about understanding the role of the arts in our creative ages and creative industries and and businesses and organisations as a place that allows us to sit with uncertainty he talks about uh Hine, who is one of the people who runs the yeah, dark mountain and um, you can find them easily online talks about daylight language where we talk about um uh, facts and figures uh and then he talks about twilight language where we talk about ambiguity or the, the place where ambiguity resides and then the midnight languages where there are whispered conversations and i think in some way the arts can help us move from this daylight stuff that isn't necessarily including everything, but it looks blinding, and move into that ambiguity because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether we will succeed. So he talks about maybe the arts can give us space to know how to know what we know is how he describes it. Like, how do we carry this? We know this stuff. How do we know how to know it, to sit with it, to live with it, to engage with it fully without being thrown into despair or paralysis? Um, But maybe it can help us get past this binary and sit in this space of uncertainty and fear and somehow find a way of saying, okay, we, uh, we don't know. Maybe one of the roles of our artists and writers is to help us learn how to sit in the darkness and the uncertainty for the longest while mm-hmm. we find our way through. And once you've done that, then you can start imagining what a new chapter might be if we have one if we have nice. one. but yeah. if we don't try we definitely won't 
Yeah. Which is sort of what Extinction Rebellion is all about. It's rebelling against the extinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. And, My pleasure. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you to all. Um, have a look at those websites. Have a look at the cafedisruptive.com website where you can find information from Rupert Regional. But this is definitely about um, reaching out hands across the water and saying this is on yeah. all of us. Yeah. So we're with you as much as you're with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Today. Thank you.